What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters, and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. What's going on, people? Uh, before I got the show started, I just wanted to raise some awareness about a particular issue, and that has to do with vaccine freedom. So um, there's a bill in Florida um, labeled HB 6003, and that's a bill that would protect citizens from forced vaccinations. Um, as it stands now in Florida, the uh, chief public health officer has a list of powers um, during a public health emergency. And one of those powers is, is that he can require individuals to get a vaccination. Um, so he can enforce that mandate without any exceptions. Um, so this bill would basically protect citizens from being required to uh, get vaccinated. You know, I, I, I believe that people should have the freedom um, to be able to choose whether or not they want a vaccination. Um, and so I called uh, two of my state representatives, talked to one of them. They were kind of curious as to why, you know, I wouldn't want uh, to get a vaccination. But that wasn't the issue. The issue was mainly freedom of choice. And uh, I called another representative and they said, um, well, I'm not going to support that bill uh, because I think we all need to or we need to get the vaccination and um, we need to achieve herd, herd immunity. We need to be responsible. And he was very short. And I said, well, what if you have uh, severe reactions or what if there's adverse effects? And, you know, what if you, you don't want to take the vaccination? He says, no, no, no I'm not going to support the bill. And I said, well, um, you know, can I drop off some literature? Maybe you can, um, you know, something that would kind of uh, raise some awareness or enlighten you a little bit. And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to support it. I think we should trust the Surgeon General. And, uh, you know, he's kind of rushing me off the phone, but that's uh, that's where we stand right now. Um, if you don't live in Florida, maybe, you know, you can check into your state's list of powers when it comes to public health emergencies. I, I don't know, you know, how each state operates, but that's something that you might want to look into. And uh, if you if you believe in vaccine freedom, maybe you should uh, call your local state representatives and tell them, hey, um, you know, I don't think this should be required of uh, of citizens. I think we should have the freedom to choose. And on that note, uh, let's get started with the show. Good afternoon, people. This is Changing the Narrative. Today, we have special guest, historian and author, William Federer. Uh, he is the author of a few different great books that I would highly recommend. His newest book is called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. He's also written the um, book, The Ten Commandments and Their Influence on American Law, Who is King in America, and many others. Welcome, Bill. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming on the show today. Um, so recently, Bill, I saw a uh, talk or a speech that you gave at um, a church regarding your new book, um, Plato um, or Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. Um, could you go into 
what the what Plato's understanding of socialism was back then, what the dangers of socialism are and, and other uh, issues. Right. So rather than just talk about, you know, the current things, I decided in my book to go back to the actual beginning of the discussion of socialism. And all of it goes back to Plato. He lived 380 B.C. in Athens, Greece, and uh, he writes in passing of Atlantis, this highly structured society, very organized. And he considered, is it, you know, this ideal uh, society and it sinks in the ocean. Now, did it exist or not? We don't know. It's a legendary, but um, Plato thought that it did. It could have been Santorini, an island in the Mediterranean that blew up. And all that's left is the volcanic rim that they built this cute little city along this rim uh, that you know, uh, cruise ships like to stop at. But nevertheless, Atlantis, um, in Plato's mind, was this ideal structured society. And Plato lived in Athens, which was a democracy. And Plato considered democracy an unstructured society. Mm-hmm. And so he said, democracy, demos means people, crossing means rule. So a democracy, the people rule. And the chief characteristic of a democracy is tolerance. Everybody tolerates each other. It's wonderful. He said it's like a charming form of government, like a bazaar where you can buy anything. It's like an embroidery patchwork with lots of different colors. And there's the greatest variety of human natures. And he says, such is democracy, a pleasing, lawless sort of government, uh, full of variety and disorder. And um, uh, and so then he goes on to explain the manner of life is that of Democrats. Uh, of course, he's describing a democracy. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. And then he says that they begin to tolerate disrespect in the home. And the father gets accustomed to descending to the level of his son. And the son has no shame or fear of his parents. And then it goes into the schools and the teacher fears and flatters the students and the students despise their masters. And then it creeps into their handling of money. And he says that since it's a democracy, they vote to spread the city treasury around. And now the treasury is empty. Then they vote to take money from the rich. Now there's no rich people. And then there's a shortage and they begin to bicker amongst themselves. He says the leaders deprive the rich of their estates and distribute them amongst the people. And um, democracy is insatiable and its desire brings it to disillusion. Then it creeps into their morality. And Plato says the young man gives into freedom and libertinism and useless and unnecessary pleasures even incest and unnatural union. Yes, that's what he's talking about. This casting off of moral restraints and it turns into this lawlessness. And finally, there's rioting and there's looting and there's crimes and people begin to say, can't someone come along and fix this mess? And that's when some governor comes along and says, I can fix Mm. it. I just need some emergency powers. Mm. And Plato says, last of all comes the tyrant. When he first appears above ground, he's the protector, full of smiles. And then he begins to consolidate power. And he says, if any are suspected of resistance to his authority, he will have a good pretext for destroying them. And then he finally says, the protector standing up in the chariot of state with the reins in his hand revealed as a tyrant absolute. And then he even incites mobs, having a mob entirely at his disposal. He's not restrained from shedding of blood. So he sends the mob out to destroy his political enemies. So so this is the model. Uh, Democracy without morals and virtue ends in chaos out of which a tyrant arises. 
Now, in the book, I go through other different attempts for people to rule themselves, then the most prominent being ancient Israel, the first 400 years when they came out of Egypt. Their experiment of self-rule lasted a little longer because they had a big magnet in the sky called God, and people were virtuous because mm -hmm. they were accountable to him. Athens didn't have that. By Plato's time, Athens had a bunch of Greek deities that nobody believed in anyway. And they were just fickle, you know, uh, emotional, you know, stories of these gods getting offended and doing things. It wasn't a, an absolute standard of right and wrong type of deity. I, anyway. I have a quick question for you. Yes. Um, did he write this in Plato's Republic? Yes. Chapters eight and nine. Okay. And um, so he uh, said that democracy is doomed to fail because it's based on the people having virtue and people really don't have virtue. If you give them a choice of giving up their life or giving up their virtue, they'll always give up their virtue to save their life. And, um, and then he says, if he, then he writes this, if a truly just virtuous man lived, let him die as he lived. I might add that the just man will be scourged, racked, bound, and will at last be crucified. <laughs> Here's Plato. Sounds like Christ. Yeah, here you say people really aren't virtuous. If there ever ever was a virtuous person born, the world would crucify him. Right. So Plato says that democracy is doomed to fail. So the best you can hope for is a nice tyrant. He calls him a philosopher king. He's the head of gold. And his administrators and military are the arms and chest of silver. They're the deep state ruling class and they're in charge. So they are the ruling class. Everybody else is in the ruled class. They are the abdomen of iron and bronze. And their purpose is to serve the head of gold in the arms and chest of silver. And so the uh, so this is socialism. It's a structured society with a ruling class and a ruled class. So we go from Atlantis, a structured society, it sinks, and there's democracy, an unstructured society, and it, but it's so unstructured, it ends in chaos, and then a tyrant usurps power, and this tyrant reinstitutes structure with a ruling class and a ruled class. So the ruling class are above the law. They're politically co connected and they're supported by the commoners. They can do things like getting their hair styled when nobody else can. Nancy you know? Pelosi. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the ruled class, they own no property. They have no families. The government decides who gets to have children, and the government takes the children away from the parents, brings them into the city, and socializes them, which is a process of getting them to get rid of their parents' views and just simply learn to obey and serve the ruling class. And Plato says that um, when a true philosopher king is born in a state, he will set in order, right? He's bringing structure, set in order his own city. He will take possession of the children who will be unaffected by the habits of their parents. These they will train in their own habits and laws. And Plato goes on to say that the children will be taught lies. He calls them mm -hmm. noble lies. He says, we want one single grand lie, which will be believed by everybody. And so, uh, so here, that's, that's socialism goes back to Plato, a ruling class and a ruled class. Now, in my book, it's, it's called Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present. I examine the other major influences on socialism. And the next one is utopia. So mm -hmm. 15, 16, 20 years after Columbus discovers America, you have the scholars in Europe are saying, gee, new lands, and maybe there's an opportunity to set up new societies. And so in 1516, Sir Thomas More writes Island of Utopia. 
It's a fictitious island off the coast of South America that supposedly was discovered by Amerigo Vespucci, but it doesn't exist. The word utopia means nowhere. It's written as a dialogue, which is the Greek style of writing. It's a conversation with a traveler. The traveler's name is Hythlodeus, which means peddler of nonsense. And so like Atlantis, Utopia is a perfectly structured society with the upper class that are the rulers, the lower class that are the commoners whose purpose is to serve the upper class. Uh, there is free health care mm-hmm. for all the commoners. Uh, there's free identical clothing. There's free welfare for everyone and um, free food. Everyone eats meals in a common dining hall, like a monastery. Mm-hmm. And um, everyone lives in identical three-story public houses with no locks on any doors. There is no private property, none. All the goods are stored in a communal warehouse. There are no taverns, no ale houses, no coffee houses. There's no place for any private meeting. Um, and there's no privacy. Everyone is tracked everywhere you go with an internal passport. If you are caught without it, it's a lifetime of slavery. Mm. And the government decides everyone's careers that they work their entire life. And um, uh, again, there's no families, no such thing as a family. The state decides who gets to have kids, regulates it. Um, So uh, very similar to China's one child policy. I mean, here they are in China, uh, you know, checking every woman to, you know, her, uh, see if she's pregnant and Planned Parenthood. There's a quote from Margaret Sanger said, no woman shall have a legal right to bear a child without a permit. So we go from Plato and his um, Island of Atlantis, perfect society to Sir Thomas More, 1516. Now, Sir Thomas More wrote this as a veiled criticism of King Henry VIII. Now, Henry VIII is the one who was very, dictatorial. He switched Mm -hmm. from being Catholic to Protestant. And unless you switched on a dime and followed him, he killed you. And so Sir Thomas More got killed. Mm -hmm. Um, Now we go forward one more century and we have Sir Francis Bacon. And the scientific revolution took place by this time with, you know, Isaac Newton discovering laws of gravity, laws of planetary motion, laws of optics. And anyway, Sir Francis Bacon writes the new Atlantis. So he is directly referring to Plato's Atlantis. And so this is an island supposedly discovered in the South Pacific off the coast of Peru. Again, highly structured, ruling class, rule class, a little more scientific careers, but the government dictates everything. Someone wrote a satire on this called Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Right. Here's Gulliver washed up on an island and it's a highly structured society with this ridiculous ruling class. And then the ruled class and the government decides to their entire lives and career. I think Jack Black did a comedy movie on it, you know. Right. And um, and so why is this important? The pilgrims. So Plato, Sir Thomas More, Sir Francis Bacon, they're all theoretical. And the pilgrims were originally a company colony with bylaws written by the investors that put up the money for their boat ride. And um, the investors put into the bylaws that everything would be owned in common. Everything gained by uh, trade, traffic, trucking, working, fishing shall go into ye common stock. And all are to have their meat, drink, and apparel, and all provisions out of ye common stock. 
And William Bradford, the governor of the Pilgrim, said the failure of that experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients applauded by some of latter times. In other words, the Pilgrims knew they were trying to live out Plato's ideal society of everything owned in common. And he says it didn't work. And they nearly starved to death. So he says it proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato, that the taking away of private property and possession of it in community would make a state happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. Hmm. He goes on for, in this instance, community property was found to breed much confusion and discontent, retard much employment. Young men who were most able and fit for service objected to being forced to spend their time working for other men's wives and children without any recompense. The strong and resourceful man had no more share of food clothes than the weak man. And this was thought injustice. The aged and graver men who were equalized in labor with the younger ones considered it an indignity and disrespect. As for men's wives who were obliged to do service for other men, such as washing their clothes, etc., they considered it a kind of slavery, and many husbands would not brook it or allow it. He said, let none argue that this is due to human failing rather than to this communistic plan of life itself. I answer that God in his wisdom saw a better plan was uh, another plan was fitter for them. He said, um, so they decided how they could raise more corn so they wouldn't starve through another winter. At length, the governor decided that each man should be allowed to plant corn for his own household. Wow, what a novel idea. <laughs> and then he says, so every family was assigned a parcel of land. This was very successful. It made all hands very industrious. Much more corn was planted. And then he says, the women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn. While before they would allege weakness and inability and to have compelled them would have been thought great oppression. Mm-hmm. So we have Plato, Sir Thomas More, Sir Francis Bacon, this theoretical owning everything in common, right? And the pilgrims try it, nearly starved to death. They scrap it. They give everybody their own plot of land, whatever grows on its shores. And it made everybody more. And, you know, rising water floats all boats. They're all making more corn. And so it helps everybody. And they have a leftover to be charitable with. And um, now wow. I, I, uh, there's... Um, people say, well, did the early church own everything in common? And if you want, I can comment on that. Yeah. I had a couple uh, of quick questions. Um, Go ahead. In regards to Plato, when he said that, um, you know, the best thing that we could hope for would be a a nice tyrant. I mean, have we ever had a nice tyrant in history? No, that's the, that's the (laughs) dilemma. You could have an absolutely perfect King, but he's not Mm -hmm. in office forever. And at some point, he hands it over to a son or a grandson that's a lush and that ends up being oppressive and starts using his power to, you know, treat people oppressively. What's a good example? Joseph in Egypt constant helped. He helped concentrate power into the hands of the Pharaoh. There's a godly man concentrating. And what did the Pharaoh do? Well, that Pharaoh fed the children of Israel. He gave them the best land of Goshen and even gave him jobs taking care of his cattle. Mm -hmm. But then there was a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he used all that concentrated power to oppress the children of Israel, even making them throw their sons in the Nile River. So that's the dilemma. You get um, 
for example, a William Howard Taft, a Republican president who later becomes chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's the first one to centralize the Supreme Court, the federal court system before different courts in the country would make different decisions. And they did not always jive. Sort of like today, some states have, you know, bans on smoking and others don't. Some states, you know, New York has bans on large gulp drinks and others don't. Some states have marijuana, others don't. Different states did different things. And they sort of with the court system was the same and everybody was fine with it. And so here you have a Republican, Taft, streamlines it so that when the pre- the Supreme Court says it, boom, all the other courts have to honor it. Well, he's a Republican, right? He, But FDR becomes the president. He puts a whole bunch of liberals on the Supreme Court. Now they use it to push all their liberal programs, right? right. And, and then you have it with corporations. You have, you know, Different corporations have a founder who works really hard and practices conservative, you know, principles and accumulates a lot of money. But he hands it over to some son or grandson that ends up having leftist views Mm -hmm. and he uses all that money to promote causes that the the granddad would have never supported. So um, uh, I could go on and on. But that's the dilemma Um, that, yes, every now and then you do get a good king and he wants to centralize power so we can do good more efficiently. But then he hands it over to some son or grandson that ends up using it oppressively. Right. Now, you you were going to talk about the uh, church. Um, You know, I've spoken to a few of my friends. We've had this conversation about socialism. And I I had a a friend of mine brought the example up about um, the church um, practicing socialism. And basically, he was making an argument for it and saying that, well, you know, if you're real, if you're really Christian, you would follow the church's model of of, uh, socialism or a socialistic government. Do you think that's taken out of context? Yes. Uh, and there's two issues that are quite important. One is the difference between voluntary and involuntary, and the other is the difference between church and government. So the early believers voluntarily sold their land, and they brought it to the feet of the apostles for the church to distribute. They did not have their land involuntarily sold and them having to bring the money and lay it at the feet of Pilate for the Roman government to redistribute. So if you want to voluntarily give away your money and you want to give the money to the church, fine. Nobody's forcing you. That's called charity. You're, mm-hmm. And the church, whenever the church helps people, it wants them to get up out of their bad situation. Why? So they can have enough money to help the next guy down the line and have this body of Christ replicate the love of God. Whenever the government does something, it's an exchange for your life. I go back mm-hmm. to that Egypt scenario, right? Yeah, the government will give you a bag of grain, but we got to take your cattle. We got to take your kids. We got to take your life. Right. And so whenever you have government agencies involved in distributing anything, that agency is run by people who want to keep their jobs. And if the poor were, if there were no poor, it would, they would, they would lose the justification for their job. And then you have politicians that the temptation for them is to be discretionary in distributing benefits. So they'll want to funnel the benefits to those that can vote them back in office and tax and regulate those that want to get them out of office. Um, And so, and then when the, when the church helps people, it's an on individual level and relationships are formed that they can uh, number one, feel a personal love from a person that they can say, well, this personal love is from a personal God. Uh, and then there's an accountability that you, that 
like a coach, you know, a good coach wants to push you a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's an accountability there that helps the person to grow spiritually. Um, Whenever the government helps anybody, number one, the person receiving it, it's impersonal and they begin to view it as a debt owed to them, not Mm -hmm. as something that they're grateful for. So they become ungrateful. And then psychologically, it does damage to a person if they receive free stuff for too long a period of time. It hurts their self-esteem. And mm-hmm. then this negative feeling of not having a self-esteem, they want to channel that somewhere. And so they channel that negative feeling toward the entity that is making them feel bad, the very government that's giving them free stuff. They end up hating the hand that feeds them. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get this violence that goes on from people that are receiving the welfare. Um, and so, so yes, yeah, so the early church, and voluntary is a big deal with God. Uh, if you think of it, here's God, he exists for eternity, he makes everything, and everything obeys him. Universes, galaxies, planets, you know, quarks, neutrons, electrons, protons, and all the animal life follows instinct. Right. And and it's, it's almost like God said, you know, been there, done that, done that. I can make things that obey me. At some point in eternity past, God said, I would like someone in my image that could love me. Well, love right. by definition must be voluntary, right? Right. Every guy knows that you're trying to win a girl. You're trying to win her heart. You're trying to get her to make a voluntary decision. Um, and so uh, this is it. So, so God creates this thing called reality. And we really can't control much. You can't control, you know, how tall you are, what color your eyes, what color your skin. You can't get control where you're, what country you're born in. I mean, but you can't control your will. And mm-hmm. so God, somewhere within our life, we're presented with choices. And it's the choice of, do we want to love God or do we not want to? He's not forcing us. The moment he would force us, he would, he himself would know that he's forcing us and he would know our response is not a free will love response. And, um, and so he hides himself behind creation because if he ever revealed himself, he's so totally awesome. Everybody would instinctively fall on their face and he wouldn't know who loves him for him or who loves him just because he's awesome. I, I was explaining to a, young person. I said, now there's a billionaire who has a son who's going to college. And if he shows up with his Porsche and Jaguar and gold rings and fancy clothes, every girl's going to want to be friends with him. And he's not going to know who loves him for him and who loves him for all of his money. But if he leaves that aside and comes to campus with holes in his jeans, a ragged t-shirt and a clunker old car, all the uppity girls are going to ignore him. And he's going to, you know, find some girl that likes to study with them in the library and they get to become friends and they fall in love and they get engaged. And then he says, hey, I want to take you back to meet my dad. Mm-hmm. And they're driving up this driveway and the gates and the mansion and the, and the girl's like, whoa. And, um, and yeah. so that's what God's after. Jesus laid aside his divinity, born humbly as a man so that people are not trying to butter up to him for political ladder climbing. You know, you and. um Anyway, so voluntary is a big thing with God. Uh, in, right. in the wilderness, they had Moses said, okay, whoever's hearts moved upon them to bring stuff to build this tabernacle in the wilderness. And it says that everybody's bringing their gold and jewels and cloth. And finally, they had to stop. We got enough. Um, David's collecting stuff to build the temple. Uh, and, and he gets the leaders and he goes, I'm going to give 3,000 talents of gold. What are you guys? It says they were moved upon to give 5,000. And David said, oh, God, everything that we have is yours. We're just giving back to you what you gave to us. Right. 
And so the only thing that's different is, is your will. So money is just a manifestation, an outward manifestation of your heart. If you're a godly person, you'll use it to spread good mm-hmm. things. If you're selfish, you'll use the money for pornography, you know? Right. Why, why do you think that uh, a lot of people today think that socialism is a benevolent thing? Or I guess when you hear about a lot of different programs like, um, you know, government health care or social security um, government education. Uh, wh- why do you think that the perception is that these programs are doing um, something good for society? You know, because I've gotten into conversation with, with uh, you know, even some of my grandparents. And, you know, when somebody's running for office, you know, they might say that, well, this person is going to cut Social Security. And, you know, I've never made the argument with them that, well, Social Security is a socialist program because, you know, then you <laughs> you get your grandparents upset or your relatives. But I mean, why do you think that the perception is socialism is a good thing or these free programs are good things? Right. So good things need to be done. The question is, who is supposed to do them? So God in the Bible gives commands to five major groups, individuals, families, employer, employees, churches, and government. There are commands for individuals to help the poor. Uh, There's really no commands for the family to help the poor. Those commands are husbands, love your wives, children, submit to your parents. There's really no commands for employers or employees to help the poor. Those commands are do an honest day's work and don't hold back the wages. There are commands for the church to take care of the poor. And historically, the church has. The churches have started hospitals, orphanages, medical clinics, schools, clinics, uh, you know, all the missionaries on the field digging wells and villages. And there's no command for the government to take care of the poor. Mm. The command to the government is the shortest. Protect the innocent, punish the guilty. There's no command for the government to be involved in health care. There's no command for the government to be involved in education. What's happened is the government has usurped the church's role and the church has let them usurp it. Okay. Cause I was going to ask you, why do you think that is? So there's a quote from Calvin Coolidge. He says, it does not follow that because something ought to be done, the national government ought to do it. Well, we need to take care of the poor. Yes. Individuals and churches take care of the poor. Well, we need to educate. Yes. But not the church, not the government. Whenever the government does anything, it does it in exchange for you giving up something. Right. Yeah. Um, like, like we'll give you the grain, but you're going to have to give us your farm and your life and your vote and everything. When the church helps people and wants them to become successful, why? So they can help the next person down the line. Now, there's a quote from Gerald Ford. Uh, he said, people say, why don't you expand that program and spend more federal money? I look them in the eye and say, do you realize that a government big enough to give us everything we want is a government big enough to take away from us everything we have? So there's two ways a gang can take over a neighborhood. One is coming with guns. The second is give away free drugs and get everybody hooked. Hmm. There's two ways socialism can take over. One is tanks coming in or the other is giving away free stuff until you get so totally dependent that if they threaten to take away the free stuff, uh, you you collapse and give away your your life. Yeah. And um, well, I mean, you know, when you look at the results of all these programs, um, I mean, it's kind of proven itself not to be efficient because you see that you see we have a lot of debt. The debt is through the roof. And um, I mean, you know, looking back, can you can we really say that we have a better society due to all these programs? I mean, are are we more educated with all the, the government education? Or do we have less poverty 
you know, because of the the war on poverty, you know, war on drugs, et cetera. So, yeah, you, I, you bring that's a very, very valid argument. And indeed, you look at the numbers, the number of people that were poor when Lyndon Johnson started his Great Society Welfare State was minuscule to what it is now. Poverty has actually exploded since the government has been, quote unquote, helping the poor. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because they realize that if they can champion the issues for the poor, the poor will vote for them. So it's socialism is a cultural bait and switch. Hmm. Right. What's a bait and switch? Well, there's a fly by night car salesman selling cars and you, you buy some car and it drives good for a couple of days and then it's a clunker and, and you take it back. And lo and behold, that car dealership is packed up and left town. Uh, you know, they call them fly by night. And um, and so that's what socialism is. It promises heaven, delivers hell. Right. It promises a dream, delivers a nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, there's the Pied Piper of Hamlin, this story in the Middle Ages where, you know, the piper played his little flute and all the little kids run after him and he takes him out and um, sells him into slavery. You know, uh, it's, it's a lure. They had um, the uh, Ulysses in the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, the Greek sailor. Mm -hmm. And there's an island that has sirens. The word siren is Greek and it was a singer. And so they they had these singers, these women singers on the shore. And the story is they would sing so beautifully, the sailors would want to get closer and closer. And they would hit the rocks and smash their boat. And then all the villagers would come out of nowhere and collect all the stuff um, in the, the Rhine River. There was the Lorelei. And there right. was this the river hit a big cliff and made a right hand turn. And supposedly it's real dangerous and there's rocks under the water. And supposedly they had some Lorelei, which was a pretty girl that sat on the top of the cliffs and she sang really pretty. And the sailors would want to get as close as they could to take a you know, look and they would hit the rocks and smash. And the villagers would come out and gather the stuff. But but socialism, it's it's this beautiful sounding song, it's the sirens, the Lorelei. But when you get up to it every single time. It's been tried. It ends in totalitarianism. It ends mm -hmm. in a structured society of a ruling class and a ruled class. Right. So does would you say that democracy leads to socialism? And if so, what what government system do you or what system do you think would work best? Right. So um, I tell people seed and soil. So think of our form of government in America. It's like a genetically engineered seed. We have a democratically elected constitutional republic for, for the little background. So democracy has two meanings. One is a general reference to a popular government. Popular means the people are somehow involved in ruling themselves. And so this use of the word democracy became popular during the Cold War, where in Russia, the people had no rights or so forth. And Eisenhower and Truman were saying, we're a you know, democracy. The other definition of the word democracy is the actual form of government. And as an actual form, democracy is every person has to be at every meeting every day to talk about every issue. Mm -hmm. So in Athens, they had 6,000 citizens, and every day they had to go to the Agora marketplace and talk politics. If you didn't show up for a couple of days and didn't know what was going on, uh, you were called an idiotus, an idiot. And um, <laughs> it was very, very time-consuming and logistically 
It only grew as big as a city state because you couldn't travel there every day um, to your home and back. So pure democracies as a functioning form of government only worked on a small level uh, geographically because everybody couldn't be there every day. A republic is where you take care of your family and your farm and you have someone in your place that goes to the market every day and talks politics. They are your representative. Mm. So the REP and republic is the same REP and representative. So you're the king. You're just ruling through representatives. We do a little hybrid in America where we democratically elect our representatives. Um, which is different than Rome. Rome had representatives, but they were hereditary back to the founders of the Roman Republic. But our representatives cannot do anything they want. They are limited by a set of rules called right. a constitution. Right. So, it, so, it's, so think of our form of government as a genetically engineered seed that took 6,000 years to finally put together. But what do you do with seeds? You plant them. Question... Does the type of soil you plant a seed in have any relation to the kind of harvest that will be produced? Well, yeah, yeah. If you plant the best seed in the world in a gravel parking lot or in a salty, sandy beach or, you know, in a swamp, it's not going to produce. So our democratic elected constitutional republic genetically engineered seed was planted in a soil that was Bible believing. At the time of the founding, 98% of the country is Protestant Christian, 1% Catholic Christian, a tenth of a percent Jewish, but 100% believing in the Bible. And there's two main features that come from believing in the Bible. One, we get rights from a creator, not from a government. Mm -hmm. Two, the creator says everyone's equal. There's no respect of persons in judgment. Um, now, we had some recent experiences where we got rid of Saddam Hussein. A lot of people died to get rid of him. And then we helped them in Iraq set up a constitution. And in one election, they vote in Sharia law, where it's the death penalty to leave Islam and you can beat your wife. And we're scratching our head thinking, how come the harvest was different? All right. Well, it's because you planted it into an Islamic soil and there's no concept in Islam of equality. Mm. Women are not equal to men. Even Mohammed said a woman's mind is deficient. So it takes two women to testify in court against one man. Oh and <laughs> a guy can have four wives. A woman can't have four husbands. And, um, yeah. and then we, we look at um, the Soviet Union. The Berlin Wall goes down. And we have political experts that go over to help these former Soviet you know, provinces and states turn into countries. And we help them set up democratic form of government with a constitution and in one generation it gets taken over by the mafia the black market the organized crime we're scratching our heads thinking how come the harvest is different mm -hmm. because you planted it in a soil that had 70 years of atheism plowed into it and atheism says this life is all there is do whatever you can to get ahead so in america the seed produced the best harvest of individual liberty and opportunity that planet Earth had ever seen because it's a Judeo-Christian soil. So mm -hmm. John Adams, one of the founders, said our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Right. What, you know, the word voting, votes, voters, elections, electors, uh, it's mentioned in the Constitution and Bill of Rights dozens and dozens of times, but never once does it tell you how to have an honest election. It was assumed. 
Right. Both yeah. sides would do an honest vote and would respect the result. But once you get rid of the fear of God, it's just a power grab. I mean, think yeah. of it. If a party can put into their platform killing innocent babies, what's voter fraud? Hmm. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's true. Yeah, a friend of mine made so, that point, actually, recently. Yeah, so, so our form of self-government only works with the concept that there is this God who gives you rights and you're accountable to him. Once you get rid of God, laws are just something that some old men made up. Why follow them? Right. Well, some will, as long as it's the in thing to do, like in Athens, you know. But once it's not the in thing to do, and once I got a financial incentive not to do it, you know, people are going to water seek its own level. And right. you're going to begin seeing uh, all kinds of things. And if the majority of the people still have godly values, it can it's it can work. But once mm -hmm. it's like your yard, uh, you, you're always going to have weeds, seeds in your yard. But as long as you keep your, your lawn mowed, uh, fertilized, you know, if, as long as you tend to your yard, the weeds are kept in check. Right. But if you neglect it and the weeds start growing and dandelions everywhere, and it's going to get, uh, you know, so as long as the majority of the people in the country hold moral values, you, you can survive with a couple bad apples every now and then. Mm. But if the, now, if a large percentage of the people give up morals, the form of government will collapse. Right. You talked about uh, in your in your book, um, I'm sorry, uh, promiscuity and decadence. Um, you, you have a chapter on it and you also talk about the loss of morals and courage. How would you say promiscuity and decadence and also the loss of morals lead into a, I guess, chaotic society? Or how does this um, tie into your 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 book? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I, th I think this is really interesting. So I mentioned in Athens that when people uh, give up their morals and virtue, it ends in chaos, out of which a tyrant usurps power. But there's someone older than me uh, that wrote a book on this. As uh, an Oxford anthropologist, J.D. Unwin, he wrote a book in 1934 called Sex and Culture. And he studied not just Athens, and but 80 civilizations over 5,000 years. And he found that sexual promiscuity always precedes the destruction of a civilization. <laughs> he traces it through like a circle, like four steps. The first step is pain and poverty. So a civilization goes through a period of war or famine, pain and poverty. Then they get through it and they work hard and become productive. And then when they all become productive, they become protective and then they have some patriotism. They're patriotic. And then they third step, they finally get prosperous and they begin to enjoy their prosperity and they begin to get pleasure focused. And then fourth, they get promiscuous. They cast off morals and restraints. They become indulgent, undisciplined, lawless, weakened, and they get conquered by the next rising civilization. Hmm. I liken it to an athlete. When the guy's young, he does his push-ups. He watches his diet. He's running and jogging, and he wants that prize. And finally, he wins the championship. And he's, man, he rules and reigns unopposed for a season, a couple seasons maybe. Mm -hmm. But then he lets off exercise and maybe eat some fatty stuff. And, and before you know it, he's a couch potato. And in his mind, he's still the tough guy. And he goes in the ring and he gets the tar knocked out of him by the next up and coming athlete. That's really tough. Mm. And, and so that's just sort of the cycle that civilizations go through. 
Right. And um, uh, there's a quote from John Adams to Thomas Jefferson. He said, have you ever found in history a single example of a nation thoroughly corrupted that was afterwards restored to virtue? Will you tell me how to prevent luxury from producing effeminacy? No mm. effort in favor of virtue is lost. So this is the idea. Once you get luxury, once you get prosperous, um, J.D. Unwin even called it a sexual marketplace. And he says, now he's not a Christian, right? He just works studying history. He says, if a woman says nothing happens until you, you make a commitment to me. And the guy says, well, whatever it takes. Right. And, um, and then little kids appear. And then the guy ends up wanting to become productive and protective so that he can take care of his wife and family. And when all the men in the country do this, then all there's, they all become productive and protective and the country ends up becoming productive and protective and rising water floats all boats type of thing. And then they become, you know, expansionistic and creative and exploring. But if the mm. woman says there doesn't need to be a commitment, water seeks its own level. And some guys are going to say, Hey, fine, let's go for it. And when the majority of the guys have that, then they become pleasure focused, mm -hmm. more selfish oriented. They're not as productive. I mean, they'll, you know, uh, anyway, you sort of can connect the dots. And, but right. when enough of the people, do, and then there's fewer children mm -hmm. produced to fill the ranks of the army and the whole country gets weakened and then conquered by the next civilization. Hmm. Wow. No, that definitely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, earlier, you talked about the pilgrims and, you know, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. And, you know, I have, uh, I, I get into these conversations with people that say, well, the pilgrims came over here or Europeans came to America and they slaughtered all the Indians and they, you know, took over the land. How do you respond to that? What's the misconception about that particular narrative? So the Aztecs, um, when they fought in battle, they had these curved swords made out of sharpened bone and shell, but their swords were like, you know, sort of hooks and they were not designed to kill the victim, it was designed to capture them. Why? Because they would have their big ceremonies where they would have 20,000 captives line up and they would march them to the top of their pyramid structure and rip out their beating hearts to the sun god and let their bodies roll down the side of it and they would the, the people would cannibalize and eat them. And um, uh, matter of fact, one of Cortez's men wrote about this and saw temples that were just filled full of thousands of skulls. And uh, nobody really believed it until about five years ago, they were doing construction underneath some of the oldest buildings in Mexico city. And they found this pagan ritual place with these thousands of skulls and bones that had gnawed teeth marks on them and the skulls of children. And they were all, um, in other words, the markings on their bodies were that they weren't killed in battle. They were intentionally sacrificed. Mm -hmm. And um, and then you go to Inca Peru, uh, and everyone was a slave of the state. And the head of the state was Atahualpa, who was a delegate of the sun god. And then you go to the Caribbean. So Columbus comes over, and he found there's two kinds of Indians on the islands. Now, he gives them the name India, Indian because he thought he was in India. And then the question is, why was Columbus trying to get to India? Because mm -hmm. 40 years earlier, the Muslims conquered Constantinople, cutting off the land routes to India. 
right? So you have Sultan Mehmet II with his 80,000 soldiers lay siege to Constantinople and they conquer it and rape and pillage and sell people into slavery. Once Constantinople falls to the Muslims in 1453, it ends the land trade routes to get from Europe to India and China. Right. Mm-hmm. Marco Polo, two centuries earlier, went from Venice, Italy to China, worked for Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan. Right. Marco Polo, who talks about the Chinese having gunpowder and pinatas and, and paper mm-hmm. from tree pulp and sw- thread from worms, silkworms. And, and so there was the, the uh, caravans that went across the Gobi Desert, the China the Silk Road and the spice trade and so forth. But when the Muslims conquered Constantinople, it cut off the land trade. And that's when Vasco da Gama sailed for Portugal around South Africa to Goa, India in 1498. Mm-hmm. But Columbus in 1492 thought the earth was smaller in diameter than it really was. And so he sailed west and he thought he made it. So all the people that hate the Europeans need to turn one chapter back in the history book and realize the very fact the Europeans set sail in the first place was Islamic Jihad. Mm. If the Muslims had not conquered the trade routes, and conquered all of the Byzantine Empire. I mean, all seven churches mentioned in the Book of Revelation were wiped out by Muslim Turks. Syria was the first country that was completely Christian until it was conquered by Caliph Umar and the Muslims. Uh, Jerusalem had been a Byzantine Christian city until it was conquered by Caliph Umar. Egypt had been Christian for six centuries until it was conquered by Amir ibn al-As. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa. What is today Morocco, Algiers, Tunisia, Libya? It was all Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian until the Muslims conquered it. But then when the Muslims conquered Constantinople, cutting off the land routes to India is when Columbus looked for a sea route. So so all the people that hate the Europeans really need to turn a chapter back in the book and see the reason that the Europeans set sail in the first place was radical Islam. Yeah. And um, but anyway, so so go ahead. No, I was going to ask, I, you know, because you, you hear this narrative or this, uh, the story about the, um, the pilgrims coming over here and, and stealing the land and then pillaging um, America and just committing like mass genocide. And also, I uh, recently had a friend say that, well, I don't celebrate Thanksgiving because it was all about the pilgrims giving thanks for slaughtering Indians. And, you know, this is a common thing, but you, you don't hear the other side of history. Right. So uh, a couple other stories. So Columbus discovered two kind of Indians. One were the Arawaks. They were peaceful. The other were the Caribbean, where we get the word Caribbean. And mm-hmm. the word means cannibal. The Caribbean Sea means cannibal sea. Why? Because the Caribbean came up from South America and would land on an island and depopulate it by eating them. So on Columbus's second, third and fourth voyage, they would come onto an island and see human bones cooking in pots. Uh, they would have cages where there were boys with their genitals cut off being fattened up to eat. Wow. And Columbus even took a couple of these boys back to Spain to show them. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, it was a nice, perfect world before the Europeans came over. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and you would have Aztecs ripping more hearts out and you'd have the entire Caribbean depopulated. Uh, and then you had the Spanish. They um, they landed, but they let some of their horses get free. And so the horses multiplied all across the Great Plains and the Comanche learned how to ride horses and they became aggressive and they wiped out all of the other Plains Indian tribes without the Europeans being there. 
Now, I guess you could blame the horse that came from the Europeans, but these were Indians killing Indians. Right. Um, I've talked to uh, other people that have worked with Indian tribes and they said, yeah, every uh, uh, summer, spring, the Indian tribe would leave the plains and go down by the river and hide amongst the cliffs. Uh, and then the men would leave and, and the, the, the women and children were left there for protection. Uh, and I said, you know, why was the protection needed? Well, another tribe would come and kidnap the women and children. Well, why weren't the men there protecting them? They were off kidnapping women and children from another tribe. Mm. <laughs> they were all doing this to each other. And um, anyway, uh, so another aspect is um, a book called uh, Guns, Guns, Germs and Steel. Yes, and Jared Diamond wrote the book and he discovered, you know, how civilization spread. He, he looks at grains and how in the Middle East you had um, wheat and barley and oats. They were called domesticable grains that you could grow and then sort of cook. And then you, they were preserved. You could store them in granaries. Um, uh, Africa didn't really have this. North Africa did, but Central and South Africa didn't. It was too tropical. They mm -hmm. had fruits, but you couldn't store the fruits. Um, India had rice, which sort of was the same, and you know, in, in China. But the Americans, the American Indians, they didn't have domesticated grains. Now, eventually, they had corn, and some of the kingdoms became agricultural. But for the most part, uh, there was such a plenty amount of animals that the majority of them stayed uh hunter gatherers mm -hmm. now in 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 the the you know the mesopotamian valley when they transitioned from hunter gatherers to agriculture they planted uh crops they needed to develop tools to farm and so that was the birth of technology and then they had to come up with accounting methods to count all the grain that was grown so that developed into writing and mathematics. And then after they depleted the soil, they would need to get some more soil. And so they became expansionistic and then they became militaristic. And then they would. Right. And, and so when there would be a clash of this more civilized that had learned how to smelt uh, copper and bronze and iron and everything uh, and make metals coming up against a culture that was still hunter-gatherers, um, guess which one won? Um, and this study in his book, Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel, talks about in Africa. And there's the Bantu tribes. And and like, you know, one tribe got a hold of, you know, some rudimentary weapons before another tribe did. And guess what? They uh, drove out the other tribe. And he talks about, you know, in Asia and Polynesia and some of these islands, one of the, you know, tribes got a hold of, you know, mm -hmm. some European trading uh, learned how to make metal and right. the other ones didn't. They were still sitting on rocks with little spears trying to catch fish and guess which one won. And so when the um, when America was discovered, it was 3000 miles from Europe and, and for even further from the Far East. Uh, and since there was such a plenteous amount of animals uh, that the majority of the, the Indians were still hunter gatherers at that time, the Ottoman Empire had steel and scimitar swords and cannons and gunpowder. China had in, Chinese invented gunpowder. I mean, they had mm -hmm. gunpowder, they had steel, you know, the Europeans, the Russians, the Japanese, everybody in the world had ships and cannons 
and swords and writing methods so they could report back. Uh, they had, uh, you know, all this technology. The American Indians were still basically in the Stone Age. In, in other words, somebody was going to conquer them. I mean, it's sort of right. like Hawaii, right? So here's Hawaii, and you have the British Navy, the French Navy, the, the Russian Navy, you know, the Spanish Navy, uh, and then America. And, you know, they say, well, America got Hawaii. Somebody was going to get Hawaii. I yeah. mean, they had canoes. I mean, right. how are you going to? Um, and um, okay. Well, this has been the story of civilization, right? And uh, when, you, when you read the Bible, I mean, it talks about nations being overturned and God does have a way of judging nations uh, at times. So, you know, when you look at history and you look at what was going on in America before the uh, Europeans arrived, I mean, Christianity did come to America as a result. And so you look at that and you say, you know, I mean, it could be a part of uh, God's judgment on a nation. So, you know, it is a common thing throughout history. It is. Um, Another interesting people criticize the Jews for driving out the inhabitants of Canaan land. And um, when you uh, read the one part where there's a King Manasseh in Judah, He's wicked. He's sacrificing children to Moloch. And the prophets come to him and says, you're filling the streets of Jerusalem with the blood of innocent children. And you're doing the same thing that the people that were here before Israel came in did. And because they did it, I brought Israel in to drive them out. And because you're doing it, I'm going to drive you out. And so we see when God went to Abraham and says, your descendants will be in Egypt for 400 years. And then I'll bring them back here because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Here they were doing human sacrifice, killing little kids. What's a just God supposed to do? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham tells, tells the Lord, says, uh, you know, will not the judge of all the world do justly? And so here's a, is a just God. What's more innocent than a baby? And if God is silent, his silence is giving consent to the sin. If God gives consent to sin, he's no longer a just God. He, he denies himself. So his very nature is to judge. He can put it off if we repent. But as far as the, 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 the situation with the American Indians or for any country for that matter, I trace two threads through history, greed and the gospel. Mm. You will always have people motivated by the gospel. And they're the ones, and they were the, for, for, for all practical purposes, the pilgrims treated the Indians good versus Jamestown that uh, was a little more, um, you know, with guns and shooting and, and massacres and so forth. But, and the same thing with William Penn. Nobody can criticize William Penn. He insisted mm-hmm. on any land that he got from the Indians, he insisted on buying at a fair price, not like the Dutch who got Manhattan Island for a couple glass beads, you know. <laughs> and and William Penn said, if there's any problems between the Indians and the planters, then we'll have a jury of 12 made up of six Indians and six planters. And history shows that uh, Pennsylvania, for the first several generations, did not have Indian problems. Why? Because um, in, in the one Indian chief said, um, you know, we in the, you know, the, the you know, whatever they, they call the settlers, uh, the Christians, um, you know, got along and every now and then a tree would fall across the trail. Uh, but then we would remove the tree and the trail stayed open. So, you know, um, so two yeah. threads trace through God. So, so one thread is, is the gospel. 
And those are people that want to go into African villages and, you know, Indian reservation. And they, and they are wanting to share the love of God. And they're bringing medical care and food and digging wells. But you have people motivated by greed. And they're the ones that sell al- trade alcohol to the Indians. Uh, and they're the ones that, um, you know, would, would take land. And they're the ones that sell people into slavery. And, mm-hmm. and guess what? Those two threads are alive right now in every human heart. And every day we have choices. Are we going to vote for a candidate that we think will help us financially? Uh, you know, give us free stuff, or are we going to vote for someone that has morals and that will stand up for, for the unborn and so forth? Um, but, but we're all faced with these decisions every day. There's a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he's talking about, you know, the socialists and communists and how they kill people. And he said, you know, if we were to just, you know, get all the bad people and, and take them away and kill them, he said, we'd have to cut right through the human heart. Because mm. each of us every day are, are face these temptations and, and sometimes we blow it. Um, but when you look back, it's not one race. You have good Spanish and bad Spanish, right? You had some of the Spanish that were, you know, raping and pillaging the Indians. But you had a Spanish priest named Bartolome de las Casas. And he spent his whole life getting the king of Spain to outlaw the enslavement of Native Americans. I mean, you can't argue mm. the guy was trying to do good. So, right. um and then you have, you know, good Germans and bad Germans and good Italians and bad Italians and good mm-hmm. Russians and bad Russians. And right. it, it, I liken it to hardware and software. And so you have a computer. Uh, and so imagine if I said, well, you know, green computers are better than red computers. You're like, you know, it really doesn't matter what com- what color the computer or the phone is. <laughs> what matters is what apps are running on it, what software is running on it. Right. And so we're spirit, mind and body. Uh, your mind is like a super fancy computer. It's more than that, but it's at least that. And, and your body's like a computer case. Right. And um, and so the, the battle is who gets to load the software on the next generation's brains? Is it going to be love your enemy, do good to those that hate you, turn the other cheek? Or is it going to be some selfish virus or some, you know, let's loot and smash and, um, you know, some malware and some corrupted files that are running on that person's brain. So the right. battle is a software battle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, shifting gears just a little bit. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions about slavery in America and across the globe? Um, well, the um, slavery goes back to the beginning of time. Uh, when there were battles, it was uh, Hammurabi's code, right? I mean, back in Abraham's day, when you captured somebody in a battle, they were your slave. And so there was slavery. Uh, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Um, the uh, Greeks in Athens, a democracy, um, they estimate that, you know, at least 40% of Athens was slaves. Now, these were white Greek slaves captured from other Greek islands, but they were slaves. Um, And then Rome. Uh, Here's Julius Caesar conquering Europe and bringing back captured peoples. And when he he had conquered some of the uh, Eastern European areas, and there was a people group called Slavs, where you get the word Yugoslav, Czechoslav, Mm -hmm. Slovenia, Slovakia. And it was named to, to them. The word Slav meant glorious one, right? Well, Caesar brought so many of these Slavs into Rome and gave them away 
as permanent servants that the word Slav got the connotation of a permanent servant. And of course, today we pronounce it slave. Uh, And then you have Islam, which is probably uh, responsible for more slaves than anything else. Um, So Muhammad himself was a white Arab. There are hadiths that says Muhammad was the white man reclining on the couch. Another hadith, which is an oral story passed down that they take as fact. Another hadith says Muhammad um, was um, lifting his arms to say a certain prayer, and they saw the whiteness of his armpits. And another hadith, (laughs) a guy was riding on his donkey, and uh, he rubs up against Muhammad's donkey, and he said, I saw the whiteness of the prophet's thigh. And, uh, And so Muhammad owned black slaves like Bill Al and others. And yeah. so in Arabic, there's one word for African and slave. It's the same word, abid. Mm. And so every African, they would call them abid, which means slave. And uh, they enslaved an estimated 180 million Africans. Wow. And they castrate the men, make them eunuchs, sell the women into the sex trafficking. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, horrible, horrible stories. Uh, and they did mm. capture about an, an estimated 1 million Europeans. And um, there were whole Catholic orders in Europe through the Middle Ages called the Trinitarians. And the head of the order was called the Ransomer. And they would go under a white flag to North Africa to get your friend back. Mm. In Holland, they would tell the Christmas story. And they would have St. Nicholas coming once a year. And um, he would give presents. But, uh, you know, sort of like a Krampus, St. Nicholas had uh, a little helper named Zvarte Pete. And he was a, a Muslim. And uh, if you were naughty, Zvarte Pete would put you in a gunny sack, take you back to Spain and sell you into Muslim slavery. And uh, mm. so, so the little kids, when you tell them that Sinterklaas is coming, they start crying. Um, but 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 this uh, so slavery has existed. So I mentioned Bartolome de las Casas. Mm-hmm. Columbus was Italian. Columbus wanted to find his way to India and China. Um, he was not Spanish. And he convinced the king and queen to let him go on his voyage. When he comes back that first trip and tells about what he had found, there was a jealous Spanish bishop named Fonseca. Mm-hmm. And he goes to the king of Spain and says, what were you thinking making this Columbus admiral of the ocean seas and governor of all new lands discovered? He's not Spanish. He's a foreigner. He's a Genoan. And um, and so the second trip, Columbus was like in a hurry. He 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 was convinced he was this close to, to China. He thought Cuba was the tip of China and, you know, another island was the tip of Japan. And, and um, but the second voyage, he saddled with 17 ships, 2000 get rich quick Spaniards that don't respect Columbus because he's Italian. They, the first settlement's called La Isabella. It was destroyed by a hurricane. Then they start getting malaria. Then they start finding these islands with human bones cooking in them. And they're like, Columbus, you, this isn't what the, the, the paradise you promised. And then. Columbus um, uh, founds Haiti, a Dominican Republic, uh, you know, San Dominique, and he uh, goes back to Spain um, and leaves his brothers in charge. And so then he comes back on his third voyage and he finds out there there's mutiny going on that the Spaniards just totally ignored the brothers. Mm-hmm. And they went up into the mountains and they'd get these Indians and have them fill you know, pots of with golden earrings and they'd kill the chief and, and the brothers were like trying to keep order, 
Columbus pens a letter to the king uh, complaining that this isn't like ruling some island of Corsica in the Mediterranean. He says, this is like, you know, totally a, a lawless situation. Fonseca gets the, the letter and says, King, I told you this Columbus is inept. And so uh, Columbus, uh, so the, the, then the king sends over a boat with a replacement governor named Babadilla. Mm-hmm. He puts Columbus and his brothers in chains, sends them back to, to Spain, Spain as prisoners. And then this Fonseca sends uh, Spaniards all around Latin South America and they're sleeping with the women and they're, you know, stealing things and fighting things and so forth. And, um, and then finally Columbus convinces the king's queen to let him go on the last fourth voyage, which he does. And he, you know, discovers Jamaica. And, um, but Columbus gets blamed for what? For trying to find a way to India and China and for being saddled with a bunch of Spaniards that don't respect him. Um, and so uh, those two threads, there was a bunch of people that were greed motivated. Um, and um, so there's this bishop uh, or this priest named Bartolome de las Casas spends his whole life trying to get the king of you know, Spain to outlaw enslaving Native Americans. He's finally successful. And then the greedy people say, well, if we can't enslave Native Americans, where are we going to get more slaves? And someone said Africa. Mm. And that's when the Spanish and then the Portuguese in Brazil began to go to the Muslim slave markets. And there were lots of them. Timbuktu, where the canoe meets the caravan, Niger River, Maritania, mm-hmm. uh, Khartoum in Sudan, uh, Mozambique, you know, the Tanzania slave trading coast. Mm-hmm. Um, the Muslims enslaved uh, over 180 million Africans and sold them throughout the Ottoman Empire into the Far East. And so the Europeans just bought some of them. Wow. And, um, but, um, but, so but, they, but Islam just gets a pass on, on uh, the whole history of slavery. Right. So they basically had, a, they had the slavery market cornered in a sense, and they were trading slaves um, to the Europeans, basically. Um, yeah, well, also to the Far East, uh, right. also throughout the Ottoman Empire. Um, and, um, you know, they, it's funny cause you'll read Islamic history and I said, well, we treated our slaves really nice. And, and Mohammed, you know, he, he gave them a classification and it's like, no, they, they would castrate them. And then in the Islamic law, it said it's wrong to castrate. So they would make one slave castrate the other slave. So they were, we didn't do it, but you made the other one do it. And, you know, they, um, you know, would uh, have yeah. the, the eunuchs take care of their harems and, um, I mean, there's a whole, you know, thousand year culture right. of this and it still goes on today. That's the sad thing. Yeah. There's yeah, slavery I, today in, in, you know, Maritania and Niger, Sudan. And, um, right. Well, I was, I was actually going to bring that up because uh, I think, uh, back in, uh, well, when Obama was in office and we invaded Libya, from my understanding, once Gaddafi was, was killed, um, the, uh, I think Muslims, came back into the, well, Muslims basically started um, the institution of slavery again. And I think um, black slaves were being sold on the market. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it's really sad. And, um, you know, there, there's lots of organizations, you know, uh, Voice of the Martyrs. And uh, I, I list them all on, on, you know, one of my postings. Um, but oh, oh, well, there's one. Um, oh, uh Eric Metaxas supports them and they raise money to buy people out of slavery. Um, and, uh, the, um, 
you know, and then there's slavery in India. It's called generational indebtedness. Uh, now, for those not familiar, um, Rome, toward its end, went bankrupt. And during the term of Diocletian, who was the, the last major emperor before Constantine, and who became Christian. So Diocletian saw people that were in debt, leaving their debts and just going off to live with the barbarians. And so Diocletian said, no one can leave your land if you have an outstanding mortgage or debt on it. Well, because of inflation, because the, the currency was shot, nobody. And so it permanently tied people to their land. And they became it. This became the feudal system where you had these vast, you know, these people that are peasants and they're tied to the land effectively as slaves. And you would have the king who would have his tax collector go out and collect the taxes from the people. And uh, but this is similar to India. So in India, um, you know, it's, it's in America, if somebody dies, the kids are not responsible for the the parents' debt. Well, not in India. Um, there's a whole rural population where uh, the debt is passed on to the kids and the grandkids and the great grandkids, and it goes on. And they're 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 born, live, and die, and and they don't even make a dent in the debt. And so they're just really tied to the land as slaves. And um, mm. and it's interesting because you know college debts in America you used to be able to um, uh, declare bankruptcy and be free from your debt. Well, President right. Obama and Joe Biden, they pushed through the bill that um, uh, students cannot, they can declare bankruptcy, but they'll never be free of their college loan debt. Hmm. Uh, it gets passed on. If they don't pay for a couple of years, they tack on interest. And when they finally catch you, you have to pay extra for the cost of them catching you. And that's added to the principal and they have to pay interest on it. And so there's students with hundreds of thousands of dollars alone and they can make a, a little measly payment. It's not even going to make a dent in it. Wow. And, and so it's like generational indebtedness. And um, hmm. anyway, that's, yeah, that's like uh, slavery in a sense. Uh, now, before I let you go, I want to ask you what warning would you give to today's rising generation as far as how to preserve their liberty or, you know, how to um, sustain an orderly society. And also, I was reading in your book, you talked about Hitler um, a little bit. And in, in one of your speeches about your book, you talked about the, the brown shirts um, as well. Do you see any similarities between what was going on in Nazi Germany and today? I'm sorry. I know that's like I, I'm throwing a lot of questions. at. No, no, that's OK. And I just looked and noticed the clock. So I got to run here right. pretty quick. But um, so so socialism is slavery. It's a soft sell. Lenin said socialism is the transition phase to communism. And Karl Marx says communism can be summed up, summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So in other words, you own nothing. You're effectively a slave. And um, and communism is responsible for hundreds of millions of people dying because your worth is only dependent on you serving the state. But uh, but anyway, Germany was a republic in the 1920s, the Weimar Republic. And somebody started a political party uh, called the National Socialist Workers Party. The head of it was was uh, Adolf Hitler. 
and he had a violent arm to his party, sort of an Antifa type arm that were called the brown shirts or Sturm Abteilung, which means stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meeting of Hitler's opponents and shot down the speakers. And they would lock arms and block access to buildings and block streets. Could you imagine people locking arms and blocking streets? And then they went into the cities and they smashed windows of over 7,000 Jewish stores on the night of broken glass, and they looted and set them on fire. And in this confusion, Hitler rounds up his political enemies and has them shot without a trial. And when the dust settles, uh, Germany had transitioned from a republic to a dictatorship. Mm. And so this is the model. I have a whole several chapters in my book about how there are those that want to intentionally create crises uh, racially, economically, religiously, ethnically, bring about these tensions because in the tensions, people will panic and want somebody to come along and fix it and they'll let go of their freedoms. And you'll have some philosopher king says, hey, you know, uh, I'll restore order. I just need some emergency powers. And when the dust settles, uh, you've given up your free country. You've given up you being the king. The, you know, basically in America, the word citizen means co-king. Right. So you're a citizen, you're, but you give up being the king and you um, end up becoming a serf or a peasant or a subject. And, and your fate's determined by the ruling class. Hmm. Uh, but it's all in the book, uh, Socialism, yeah. The Real History from Plato to the Present. And where can people find your books? Oh, thank you. Uh, it's AmericanMinute.com. Okay. Thanks and a I lot. send out a free daily email called American Minute if they can sign up for it. Perfect. I mean, you know, I always considered you to be an American treasure and you're like a walk-in library. So, <laughs> you know. Oh. Uh, find that amazing well, but um this is like another side of history that you don't hear about and you know this is the reason why i uh wanted to interview you but um thanks for your time bill hey anytime i'm just a, a phone call away all right sounds good god bless all right. 